Hello. QueerAF is now an independent community interest company. Our podcast's first four seasons were funded by National Student Pride, and so there might be some old calls to action in them. For the most up-to-date info on our podcast that funds budding LGBTQIA plus audio producers, visit wearequeeraf.com and sign up for our free weekly newsletter that sums up the LGBTQIA plus world and supports queer creatives kickstart their career. Enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week's hashtag QueerAF features strong themes, including sexual assault, drugs, and chemsex. Listener discretion is advised. It's a tale as old as time. Whether it was Bronski Beat singing about the small town boy who packed his bags and never looked back, or Kurt Hummel dreaming of ditching a dingy classroom for the bright lights of Broadway, queer people have always had a history of trading their hometowns for a big city. When I moved to London from Ireland, my primary reason to relocate was to study, but I was also making a journey towards self acceptance. Dublin was a very different place 10 years ago. Before the referendum on same-sex marriage in Ireland, nobody really seemed to be talking about gay people in a positive way. I began to come out towards the end of secondary school and while I was accepted by practically everyone, it didn't erase an environment where words like gay, bent and fag were thrown around like it was nobody's business. And to add salt to the wound, the teachers in my school weren't much better. I saw everything from passive reactions to active homophobia from nearly all of the adult role models in my life. So it's no wonder that as soon as I was old enough to jump ship, I was on my way to London to begin university and start living my best queer life. The opportunity to experience a new cosmopolitan city, to make other queer friends, to start all over again. It seemed like a dream. That's why it's still so hard for me to fathom that a little over a year later, wandering to a tube station at 5am in the freezing cold, high on drugs I'd been forced to take, having been sexually assaulted by two men, I was living a real-life nightmare. This week on Hashtag QueerAF, we have a bold, brave and crucial story from Dublin-born reporter and audio producer Rory Boyle. It's not the first time on the show that we've delved into stories about chemsex, the use of drugs to enhance sexual experiences. You can check out our feed for our in-depth special link episode on that phenomenon. But today, Rory is telling his own story as a survivor of a cruel attack where chems were used against him. You'll find in our show notes links to support as Rory calls on the apps and all of us to take action and care when we're out there, dating, 
and making our way through modern LGBT plus life. That's this week's hashtag QueerIF. I'm Jamie Wareham. I have just gotten up uncharacteristically early on a Saturday morning to go and meet David Stewart in Soho. He is the first person to name and identify chemsex as an emerging gay cultural phenomenon. He's also developed the world's first chemsex support services and he's fought relentlessly for greater chemsex awareness by encouraging dialogue and discussion within the queer community. And as if that wasn't impressive enough, he's also managed to find a quiet spot in the middle of central London for us to have a quick chat about why chemsex is so prevalent and how the apps play into this. All right, so David, I know it's a question that you've probably been asked a million times, but can you give me a brief definition for anybody listening who doesn't know what chemsex is as to what that term actually means? Sure, chemsex is basically drug use and sex, particularly or specifically within the gay community. It's particular drugs and it's got sort of particular definitions, but essentially it's a phenomenon affecting gay cultures around the world and it's got to do with online gay hookup culture and hookup sex culture. And I suppose people have been having sex and taking drugs since the dawn of time, practically. But why has chemsex become such an epidemic in recent times within the queer community? Chemsex has become a bit of a phenomenon lately, different to the use of drugs and sex historically. I mean, some people are mistaking chemsex to think that it means the use of alcohol or any drug by any population throughout history, and that's been going on for a long, long time. Chemsex involves crystal methamphetamine, mephedrone, and or GHB or GBL. Those drugs specifically do something to the sort of male sexual experience, particularly when it's associated with some inhibiting factors, like not being able to enjoy sex or feeling shame around sex or fetishes or fantasies, or sort of religion being in the room when you're trying to have sex, or disease being in the room when you're trying to have sex, or the legacy of death and HIV and AIDS being in the room when you're trying to have sex. Chems, which is those three drugs specifically, help the experience of enjoying sex despite those things where other drugs can't. And other populations don't always experience the same kind of issues around sex as gay men do around that. What about people who go on the apps and they suddenly open up to an Argos catalogue of men? And it's obviously on Grindr or any of the dating apps, really. A lot of the conversation gets very hypersexualized very quickly. And I think you're definitely exposed to certain things you may not have been before. I mean, can you explain why that might be so intoxicating for a young person who's using those apps for the first time and how it might lead to them doing something they wouldn't even have considered before they opened up that app. I mean, sure, it's such a free and disinhibiting kind of space. It's liberty. It's sexual liberation. It looks like sexual liberation in a, in a glitzy package. I remember that a lot of gay men's sexual experiences, and I'm not talking about queer sex, I'm not talking about lesbian sex, I'm talking about gay sex, homosex. Historically, a lot of those experiences have been at the age of 14 in a public toilet. Yeah. Um, or perhaps sexual abuse for a lot of people at a younger age. Sometimes it's about clumsy experiences over a drink with a stranger in a bar that you never see again or that you might have had some shame or secrecy or illegality or naughtiness associated with it. Imagine that history. Now imagine bursting out of that history overnight into the land of grinder and apps. 
But, you know, suddenly releasing a bunch of kids into a candy shop who had been told all their life they must never eat candy and they'll never have it and they don't deserve it and they should be kept away from it and suddenly putting them in a candy shop, they're going to go crazy. Imagine a different group of kids that were educated about the role sugar plays in our bodies and in our lives and what a balanced diet is and the joys of caring about yourself and others and having a good health and diet and you know the role that sugar and candy plays in your life and then you release them into a candy shop. They'll have a different experience. We're exploding into a candy shop of sexual liberation overnight. I want to say kind of at the end of an AIDS epidemic, Mm. but it does continue. And we haven't been given or taught or exposed to the skills to manage that candy shop. I wish it wasn't the case, but I can totes relate to a lot of what David has just said. Once I moved to London, I very quickly started to realise that although I was in a more accepting city, I still carried a lot of the gay shame that so many queer people inherit from society at a very early age. Though that's not to say I wasn't having fun. Within the first few months of living within student halls, I'd made some amazing lifelong friends who are still my number one huns to this day. But I also had friends who loved embracing their inner Kesha every bit as much as I did. Maybe a little bit too much. In my student days, drinking yourself into oblivion was as commonplace as binge-watching your favourite Netflix series. And as much as I loved dancing the night away in heaven, there was always something inherently lonely about the gay scene to me. My sexual assault happened just after I'd flown back to London after Christmas break in Dublin, and I specifically remember feeling really depressed around the time of January. I wasn't enjoying uni for a number of reasons, and I think that years of being picked on for being the queer ginger kid had started to chip away at me. Whether it was having my voice, my mannerisms, or my love of Sharpay from High School Musical ridiculed, it's now pretty obvious to me that I had developed severe social anxiety, which was preventing me from engaging properly with my studies or my course mates. I was also beginning to spend a lot more time with a group of friends whose number one concern seemed to be where their next drink was coming from. Even though deep down I knew these friends didn't have my best interests at heart, London can be a really lonely place. And just like Gretchen Wieners knew it was better to be in the plastics hating life than not be in them at all, I knew it was better to have selfish, self-destructive friends than to spend evenings alone in a big city. But what really sent me down the rabbit hole was experiencing one of the things queer people are most terrified of. Rejection. This came from someone who I'd fallen hard for, and when this already very messed up codependent relationship ended, I didn't know what to do with myself. Even amongst 8 million people in London, I felt completely alone. I remember being in a pub just down the road from my flat and running into a gay friend of a friend. I've always been pretty good at putting on a brave face, but after a drink or two, I remember letting my guard down and telling this friendly acquaintance that I was pretty lonely and I wanted to meet someone. I'll never forget his exact words to me. You've got an iPhone. Get Grindr. And I remember him whipping out his phone and seeing that an endless sea of hot guys were a literal tap away. But it wasn't long before things started to go really pear-shaped for me. But before I go into exactly what happened, David Stewart again. 
Imagine a one-night stand with somebody in 1982 where I might go home with you, for instance, and I might be so drunk when I go home with you, I can't remember your name when I wake up in the morning, but I did stay the night. And when I wake up in the morning, I might have to negotiate that awkwardness of not remembering your name. Those social skills are skills that help us learn and adapt how to manage sex, hooking up, rejection, feeling pleasant things, potential things like sexual assaults and things like that and awkward situations where you want something but you're so nervous you're not always attentive to the other person's needs. These are skills that we learn through trial and error and experience, preferably the things we learn in school, in relationship and sex education, but we're not. How far away do you think we are from addressing some of the things we've just spoken about in schools? Because we've seen the fire and fury that has been expressed over LGBT inclusion in education. And that's not even necessarily sex ed half the time that people have a problem with. They have a problem with existence even being acknowledged. We've seen the protests in Birmingham that have been shocking, frankly. Do you think we're getting closer to some of these issues actually being spoken about in schools? Because that would have really helped me. I'm sure. I'm sorry you had a bad, bad experience of that too. The, no, I don't think we're moving forward. I think in the last 10 years we're moving backward. But there are, as you say, a lot of young people coming to London, jumping on an app without having learned those skills and the obligation to have sex with a stranger that you've never met before committing to have had sex before you even see them and not having the skills to manage their expectations of you, the rejection that's very likely to happen and the loneliness that might slap you in the face only an hour later when you're obliged to leave after the orgasm. I'm sort of making a quite intense, unattractive picture of what the hookup culture can be. It can be a lot better than that. But that is what young people experience in modern times in a gay sex scenario and they don't have the skills to manage it and it's our job as a gay culture as a queer culture and as a healthcare community too to have discussions around these things where do you think the apps come in on all of this how much responsibility do you think the apps should hold to making sure that safe consensual hookups and meetups do actually happen i think there should be a huge responsibility i wish there was i i'm also tolerant in a way because apps are new. I'm a, I'm a 52-year-old gay man. Chemsex, but also with hookup culture, is a technological sexual revolution. But apps are run by businessmen, usually in offices a long, long way from where any of this is happening, who aren't schooled in these conversations that you and I are having. Hopefully they'll hear your podcast and invite the communities to be more involved. Sometimes their priorities are making money and they don't care. Sometimes they might not see how an app can educate someone. You can't filter out prejudice and judgment. You can't filter out insecurities and vulnerabilities and fear of rejection. You can, and you can't build in sex and relationship education that's queer inclusive into a tick box exercise in an app. And there's a whole lot of damage being done to our gay communities here. Quite a, uh, quite a whole lot. Our sexual health clinics are full of them. And I'm not talking about disease and infections. I'm talking about the psychological and emotional damage from mm. trying to survive within online hookup culture. Sadly, I'm one of the many to have experienced some of the damage that David is talking about and I remember a lot of it like it was just yesterday. It was a bitterly cold January night in London and a lot of my friends were still in their hometowns for Christmas break and I remember feeling really low and just wanting some company. So I opened up Grinder. Looking back, I was definitely looking for approval in 
all the wrong places. It must have been close to 11pm, but within a few minutes, there was a fit, articulate, older guy inviting me to spend the night at his flat in northwest London. We exchanged numbers and started texting, but I knew it couldn't have been a good idea. I felt anxious at the sheer thought of showing up at a stranger's place on the literal other side of town. But a toxic combination of my loneliness and his persistence meant that I jumped on the tube and made the journey from southeast to northwest London. As I got closer and closer to my stop, my nerves became greater and greater. I can't back out now. I've done the 40 minute journey and he's expecting me. Besides, it's freezing outside, so the sooner I get to his, the sooner I'll be out of the cold. I know, my thought process sounds completely insane to me too. But as a naive, young, queer person, I actually thought these were legitimate reasons to step into what turned out to be a lion's den. When I arrived at his building, he buzzed me in immediately and I remember briskly walking up the stairs to his front door because I didn't want to give off the impression that I was even slightly apprehensive. But did I want this? There wasn't time to think anymore. I was at his doorstep and before I could even knock, he opened the door and greeted me with an immediate kiss on the lips. That was a red flag. I knew I wasn't exactly coming over to play Monopoly, but we hadn't set anything in stone and to be so forward before we'd even exchanged small talk was unsettling to say the least. He offered me a drink and I accepted whatever he had in his fridge, anything to calm my nerves. He then gave me a tour of what turned out to be a pretty impressive flat. White carpets, big windows, a spacious living room furnished with artwork and books, but we weren't hanging out there. He led me straight to the bedroom. I remember sitting on a chair next to his desk and he went straight to his computer to put on some music and the first thing he played was a never-ending remix of Happy by Pharrell. As if that wasn't bizarre enough, he immediately opened up Grinder and started scrolling through pictures of his numerous hookups and bragging about everything he'd done with them. I was really uncomfortable, but even if I got up and left now, how was I going to get home? The tube had stopped running for the night and I wasn't going to call a friend for help because that would have meant I would have had to explain what had happened. Besides, what was I running from? Sure, this guy was being a bit overt, but I'm the one that agreed to come here, so surely that means I kind of want this too? As I finished my drink, I remember reclining back in the chair that I was sat on and being handed a white powder wrapped in paper. He said it was MDMA and I'd seen MD at uni and it really wasn't my thing. But as he swallowed his, he motioned for me to swallow mine. I really didn't want to. I couldn't even really be sure what it was. I placed it in the corner of my mouth and planned on turning my back and spitting it out. But that wasn't an option. He looked me dead in the eyes and said, swallow the bomb. At that moment, one thing became very clear. This was a situation where the man I was with held all the power. I was with an older guy, completely alone in his flat, miles from home. It was the middle of the night. Nobody knew where I was and I'd just taken an unknown substance. I was trapped. 
So why do we struggle to say no in situations that we know aren't right? And why do so many of us stay silent after the abuse has taken place? I think it's it's a combination of things always for for everyone, right? So there's the practical stuff of if I come out about having had these experiences or these experiences, then suddenly I'm the person who calls out sexual abuse. And that can be quite a role to step into. That's Tanaka Mishi. He's a writer and performer who's also experienced sexual assault and is now using his art to educate on consent. As someone who can relate to my experience, Tanaka has some great insight into my questions. Within the LGBT community, we're really, really worried about our branding. We're really worried that if we acknowledge that this stuff happens to us, that we kind of slip into being victims. And then also we kind of have to talk about the fact that it happens within this community, that some of the perpetrators belong to this community. And that's really bad PR. And I think there's a fear that we're going to play into the hands, particularly of of homophobes and transphobes, if we acknowledge those things that will like lose control of that conversation if we start having it. I definitely know who the person who assaulted me was. Mm -hmm. And I actually recently looked him up online just to sort of see what he was up to these days. And there's a part of me that doesn't ever really want to reveal his identity because I don't really want to destroy him. And I think part of that is Mm. the fact that he is another queer person and I don't really want to tear him down partially because of that. So do you think that's something a lot of people go through as well? Oh, totally. And there's this big push for us to empathize with the people in our communities, even if they are also our abusers or our perpetrators. In a context where solidarity is so important, almost your instinct is to try and protect that person sometimes. In my experience and in the experience of many people I've spoken to, we haven't had a solid sex education Mm -hmm. or education on consent. And I would argue that a lot of people haven't had education on consent, but specifically sex ed, it's something that I never had, you know, for me in school. I had nothing relatable. So do you think that plays into the amount of abuse and damage that's been done? Yeah, so there's definitely a lack of sex education for queer people and a lack of really taking seriously that consent is a factor for us is what I found. I think it's also that what consent education there is out there is very straight and very cis and doesn't take into account that we're a we're a community, we're a culture, and we have particular needs and particular histories which are different. For men who are having sex with men, like we're only a couple of generations away from the days where consent was illegal. Consenting to sex verbally, openly, enthusiastically was destroying your plausible deniability if that other person turned out to be an undercover police officer and you're arrested and then your life is over. You know, like all of that kind of stuff of being part of a community where sex is hidden. We had literally had secret languages to, <laughs> like, like, and code words. We still have a few 70. of those. Yes. But do you know what I mean? Like it's all a legacy of being silenced. And it's not to say that we shouldn't celebrate the inventiveness and the beauty of that and that there's not some lovely strategies that we've developed. But it's different to kind of do this blanket. This is what every young person needs to know about sex. And that's the bare minimum, I think is necessary, but not sufficient, right? It's not enough. We need sex education for us that is designed by people in this community based on the reality of what our lives look like. I've learned so much from Tanaka and David. And now when I look back on my experience, I realize a lot of the language that was used that fateful night was extremely troubling. 
As soon as whatever substance I had been given kicked in, everything that was about to happen was laid down by my assaulter. You will do this to me. I will do what I want to you. You are going to enjoy it. But first, we're going to take a shot of G. We heard a little bit about the drugs used in chemsex from David Stewart earlier and how dangerous they can be, but I had no idea what G was back then. I remember tiny drops of clear liquid going into two sets of glasses mixed with tropical juice. It's not something I ever would have tried in any other circumstances, but I was high as a kite. I was in no position to think clearly about what I was doing or in any position to consent to anything. I don't fully remember what happened next, and I'm not sure if that's because I don't want to remember or if it's because of the effects of the drugs. But needless to say, a lot of non-consensual sex acts occurred over the next hour or so. It must have been about two or three in the morning at this point, and I remember feeling really tired and lethargic, and I remember wanting to go fast asleep. My head hit the pillow and my eyes were closed, but I could still feel the man beside me was wide awake. I was in a deep sleep for about an hour or two, and then I remember hearing a new voice and two sets of footsteps coming towards the bedroom. I was groggy and still half asleep, so in what seemed like almost a split second, I remember my underwear being pulled down, and even though the lights were off and the room was dark, I could see a set of eyes looking up at me and a new man with a sinister smile on his face trying to perform a sex act on me. Not only was this man in his 50s or older and completely not my type, he was also clearly someone who had no issue whatsoever doing whatever he wanted with my body. Now that I was back in a semi-sober state, I knew I had to get out of the flat. I remember jumping up immediately and getting dressed as fast as I could. Neither of the men seemed to be bothered at all by how frantic I was suddenly acting. Was it that they didn't care or was it that they'd seen it all before? As I threw my clothes on, they were talking about me as if I wasn't even in the room. And I remember hearing the flat owner turn to the guy who had just arrived and say, yeah, we were safe. I mean, I'm undetectable and he's young, so he insisted we use condoms. I actually had no idea what undetectable meant. I knew it was a HIV related term. And even though we had used condoms, it still freaked me out. I pushed past both the men, muttered, I have to go, and ran straight to the door, which slammed behind me. The walk back to the tube station was one of the worst experiences I've ever had. It was around 5.30am, still dark out, and still bitterly cold. The early morning January air was harsh and sobering, and everything that had happened just hit me at once. I was still affected by the drugs and I remember wandering into a corner shop by the station and buying a bottle of water and some chewing gum. Anything to get the taste of this horrible night away. Sat amongst hordes of people on the tube ride home, it was back to reality. Everyone around me was minding their own business, but I couldn't help but feel like they were all watching me. Like they knew what I had done and they weren't afraid to judge. By the time I was back in Southeast London, the fear and shame had set in. Why did I go there in the first place? What happens if anyone finds out? What if I've caught an STI? As soon as I was off the tube, 
a text came through on my phone. That was fun, but you left so soon. I didn't reply. I couldn't reply. I just wanted to pretend the whole thing had never happened. And that's exactly what I did. Back in my flat, I went straight to my room, drew the curtains, pulled the duvet over me and crashed. This was something I wouldn't face, I couldn't face, for the next five years. I didn't know how to go about addressing my experiences at all, but somebody who did manage to do that is Tanakamishi. I think that stuff does go away for lots of people at some point, or at least it largely goes away and things are definitely better. But yeah, it affects me. It affects the people in my life. And there are even kind of points in my day where it's really hard. Being in the shower is not a good place for me because I'm alone, I'm with my body, my mind goes there. Well, you are definitely going to educate people through some of the creative projects that you're working on, or maybe you're aiming that to do that. That is the hope. I can yeah, see smiling. the hope. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what would you tell yourself pre the assault to maybe help yourself get through the recovery a bit better? I would tell myself not to dismiss it. It happened, I acknowledged it happened, but I was really harsh with myself in terms of how I handled it. I, I did things like saying, okay, I'm going to set myself six months to get over this and then I need to be over it. And just, you know, saying that out loud now, no, mm. like that's not how that works. If I said that to another person, that would be completely unreasonable. But for some reason it was okay to say to myself, right? I guess you probably didn't want to be defined by it either. I think yeah. we can feel quite shackled by these events. So is that your wider message mm. then through your play and through all the activism that you do that it might take time, but this is something that, anyone can recover from with the right tools and the right help. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the, I, I might put that on the press junket. <laughs> so Tanaka has clearly spelled out for us that recovery is possible. So what was it that inspired me to finally speak up? Me Too, a movement against sexual harassment and assault that spread virally in October 2017 via a hashtag in an attempt to demonstrate the widespread prevalence of sexual assault and harassment was the movement that really got me thinking about what happened to me. Even though I didn't want this and I didn't enjoy what had happened, there was a part of me that felt that because I had agreed to enter a potentially risky situation, the outcome was my fault. I now know this is something a lot of sexual assault survivors deal with and that blame and shame can be huge contributing factors as to why people don't speak up sooner. Sadly, queer people have a history of staying quiet around many issues surrounding their identity and experiences, but the good news is there is hope. After a short break... Rory speaks to Survivors UK and begins resolving a part of his difficult jet coming to terms with his assault. Thanks for listening to Hashtag Queer AF, a project by National Student Pride that pays reporters, graduates and students to tell their own and LGBT plus stories like Rory is today. This year's National Student Pride is celebrating its 15th year. From the 21st to the 23rd of February, this week's announcement is that hot off the back of their new single, the Pussycat Dolls are playing at GOI Heaven during National Student Pride. 
Hit up studentpride.co.uk to get your weekend tickets. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. We're back. This is Hashtag QRF. I'm Jamie Worm. This week, Rory is telling a bold, brave and crucial story. Rory is on his way to meet Survivors UK. Sam Thompson is the Outreach and Engagement Officer for Survivors UK, a charity who support anyone affected by male sexual violation. I caught up with Sam at his workplace to find out more about what they do and the services available. My job is to raise awareness for male rape and sexual abuse and sexual violence, to help educate people about how we can all support survivors of all genders in terms of sexual violence. I like to use the term survivors, if that's okay. Sexual violence and supporting people shouldn't be something that you need to be a doctor or a counsellor or a therapist to help people with. We all have the ability to listen and we all have the ability to support people and that is what I try and teach people. So... Sam, tell me a little bit more about exactly who Survivors UK are and what you guys do. So Survivors UK is a male rape and sexual abuse service, but we're an inclusive service. We accept and will support anyone who identifies as male, who identifies as transgender and non-binary, as well as anyone, regardless of their gender identity, who feels that our service is best fit for them. I think that sometimes people might think that as soon as you start talking about it, that you will feel recovered or you will feel that that is the end of the journey. But talking is the first step, I think, for a lot of people. And it takes time. And I think people who have experienced sexual violence, as well as people who are supporting people who have experienced sexual violence, need to be aware of that, that it is a journey, and that it can take time for people. So, Sam, break it down for us. If we've experienced sexual violence, what can we actually do? What are those initial first steps we can take? Our helpline is open seven days a week. It's 12 till 8. You can get in touch with that at help at survivorsuk.org or you can go through our website, which is just Survivors UK. But also you can Google, for people who are maybe international who are listening, you can Google sexual violence support and then your town, your city, your state. And that can help you as well. You can get in touch with the nearest one. People don't know that your GP or your local doctor, 999, 911, emergency helplines, they are there for that as well. They can help you through that. Call these helplines, call the emergency hotlines, Samaritans and other charities that are 24-7 
you should never feel alone and you are not alone if you are dealing with this. And then the last thing for those people who are listening who are in that space where they might not feel ready, you know, you're an absolute legend in the sense that it is tough and you are so strong and so brave to be considering talking about this, to be even listening to this podcast. Hearing something so positive and hopeful from Sam not only gives me hope for the future, but it also cements what I have learned through telling my story. It might sound like a total cliche, but putting this out there has been the biggest weight off my shoulders and extremely therapeutic. Now that I'm finally getting help for my experience, I think about the past a lot. Just like Cher, there's a lot I would like to change if I could turn back time. And even though my experience was overwhelmingly negative, one hugely positive thing that it's made me realize is that while there'll always be bad people in the world, the queer community is full of loving, vibrant, passionate individuals who will listen to you and be there for you when the chips hit the fan. I really believe you are who you hang out with and that surrounding yourself with positive people is essential to your well-being. I've had good days, bad days, and everything in between. And one thing that's really helped me when I'm down is listening to the Spice Girls, but I reluctantly accept that they might not be your cup of tea. But if telling my story makes just one queer kid think a little bit more deeply about consent or chemsex, or problematic behavior on the apps, then it will have been a story worth telling. Before we wrap up, a huge thank you to Rory Boyle for sharing his story today. I'm sure you'll agree with me already that it was a story worth telling. If you are struggling with any of the issues in today's show, Check out our show notes for links to survivorsuk.org and staybrave.org.uk, which has an extensive list of local support groups. If ever in doubt about any crime, call 101 in the UK. And if you're in danger, always call 999. That's it for this week's Hashtag Query F. But stay with us because this season we're featuring a hand-picked track of a rising LGBTQ artist at the end of each episode. And this week it's from former Shipwreck contestant Kush. Thanks to Rory Boyle for today's production and story. Rory is a reporter and audio producer I can't recommend more. Check out the show notes for his details and find him on Twitter at Mr. Rory Boyle. Executive production today came from me at Jamie underscore Wareham on Twitter. Our annual live podcast recording is coming up at National Student Pride on the February the 22nd with guest host and BBC broadcaster Evan Davis. Follow at Student Pride on socials to find out who his amazing guest is going to be. Following previous live editions with Ian McKellen, Courtney Act and Years and Years is Ollie Alexander. Tickets at studentpride.co.uk. As we leave you with this week's LGBTQ artist, go rate, review and share this episode with a friend. Spread the hashtag QueerAF message and Rory's crucial story. While you listen to Kushkana's sweet track, Should Have Loved Me. We are hashtag QueerAF, and so are you.
Should Have Loved Me by Kush is on Spotify. Find him on at Kushting on Twitter and Instagram. Links are also in our description. Have a Queer AF week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.